It is the LDS Life Podcast. I'm Kevin Williams. Wednesday, August 7th, 2019, 7.03 in the evening. We are doing a part two of Amy McClellan, Clean Water in Kenya. Uh, As you know, if you've been following the podcast, a few months ago back on March 2nd, although I didn't upload it until March 3rd due to technical difficulties, I did an interview with Amy. Went very well. We talked about clean water in Kenya. We talked about... uh, how she got started in doTERRA, and of course, uh, the new mission policy uh, where people can actually call home. By the way, how's that working out for you, Amy? I know you have a son in the Philippines. How's that uh, working out? Is your son calling you every week? You know, he doesn't call us every single week. We do hear from him, you know, pretty regularly, but sometimes he just doesn't have enough time during his P-Day. And honestly, it has been a huge blessing. I think it really has um, been a good thing, especially for him. Um, Just it's helped him transition, you know, and I think that at least in his situation, like I said, it was a huge blessing, the timing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, did he get, uh, does he get homesick pretty easily? He doesn't. It was for him. Um, I think it was adjusting to yeah. the mission. It was adjusting to some of the, the rules. It was adjusting to maybe um, different personalities in companionships and things like that. That made it more challenging for him um, than actually the, the homesick part of it. So it was good for us to be able to help him kind of process some of those challenges and help him kind of figure out ways to um, kind of cope with those those things that he had never de- dealt with, never, you know, had situations yeah. to that. I assume that uh, your husband ser- served a mission, am I correct? He did. Mm-hmm. Well, where did he go? He served his mission in Sacramento. Oh, interesting. Okay. So not quite as dramatic as the Philippines. No, no. He was <laughs> stateside, um, English-speaking, However, he spent a good portion of his mission um, serving in a Tongan area. So. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Uh, little side note about Sacramento, then we'll get into this. That is where Rush Limbaugh got his start in talk radio. Did you know that? I did not. I did yes, not. New fact. KFBK from 1984 to 88. Little oh, interesting cool. yeah. information. Anyway, uh, so you went to Kenya, and how was your experience? Wow. Um, (laughs) That's a loaded question. It it is. It is. It was an incredible experience. Um, It was far more than I ever expected um, it to be as far as what it did for me personally. I knew what our mission was going there, and I kind of prepared myself for what I thought the experience was going to be like, um, but I really, I guess, had no clue what the circumstances were going to be like and exactly where we would be led on our trip. So it was incredible. It was emotional. I loved, I loved it. And what did you like about it? Well, first off, I'll just, I'll just kind of tell you a little bit about what happened when we arrived. So Um, We flew into Nairobi and we stayed a night there before we went out to where the well site was. Um, So it was a a drive several hours to where we kind of called it our home base. And then Kikili Village, where we put the well in, 
is actually what they call upcountry. So it's probably from where our home base was another hour on dirt roads to get there. And um, they have what they call Kenyan time there, meaning things happen. And if you say, you know, we'll meet at 10 o'clock, that does not mean we're really meeting at 10 o'clock. Punctuality is not a thing there. Um, some of it's due to just, you know, um, traffic and circumstances beyond their control. So at any rate, when we went up country um, out to visit the well, we found that there were hundreds of people from their community, their chief and um, some prominent figures they're waiting for us and they had been waiting about two hours we this was unbeknownst to us it was a kind of a a special surprise that they wanted um to share some songs with us they wanted to um do some kind of ceremonial stuff it was just really really cool and it was exciting to see like all of the smiles and the cheers and how welcoming they were and they just expressed their gratitude and it was so heartfelt like I can't even tell you so it was an emotional start to our trip and it was cool to see just how like watching that clean water start to flow something simple like getting a cup full of water suddenly had so much more significance to me because I could see the daily struggle we went out and visited um, the riverbed that's dry now where they had dug down and that's where they had been getting their water before the well turned on. So seeing that daily struggle, meeting these people face to face, it just became so much more real and we could like truly see what this project meant to the people in that village. And so, I mean, it just started off that way. Like first day out up country, we have this really cool experience. And just from there, Everything else was kind of led by uh, divine design. Like, I can't even tell you, every step of the way, there were other things that we were able to do while we were there that we never imagined doing. We did the Days for Girls project, which we knew we were gonna do. Um, but then, you know, through connections with people that we met, um, we were able to also, not that I wanna derail and, um, not talk about the clean water and project, but we we're also met, able to meet um, uh, a man and his wife who have an orphanage in one of the poorest portions of Nairobi and spent some time with them and in their, in their school and in their home and um, just had some really, really cool spiritual experiences. Um, em emotionally, it was so impactful and I don't even know, like it's hard to describe some of the things that and we were able to do and see and be a part of. Well, since this is an LDS Life podcast, we can get a little bit deep into this. Uh, did you feel inspired to say something to the people you met that you didn't think about saying or anything like that? Um, so most of the people that came to the well when we were there, um, they, they are very much... Um, God-centered, um, Christian-based community. And so they were very, very, very grateful um, to their Heavenly Father for this, this opportunity to have clean water, for the events that led up to the point where we were able to partner with them and, and do the well. Um, so there were points where we had opportunity um, that I like to kind of, in small, simple ways, bear testimony 
um, you know, it was just every step of the way there was someone's hand guiding things. And that's what I know for a fact, you know, like when I said, we tried to prepare ourselves for what we were going to do and what our purpose was. I really didn't have the vision of what that was going to look like. You know, it just was unfolding as we went. Um, it was really, really, really cool and spiritual. So, Okay, so I'm going to ask a few questions here. Um, how? Okay, I'm going to ask what might seem like a weird question. Only reason I'm asking this is because, believe it or not, when I was a little kid, up until I was about a little over seven and a half years old, I used to want to be a whale digger, believe it or not. And uh -huh. the reason for that is because back in 1987, the spring of 87, I actually had neighbors that were digging a well. And so I'm going to ask you, what does digging a well inquire? Because I just remember there was a huge pipe being hammered down into the ground and I could hear it constantly all day outside. <laughs> I don't know. Is, is that how it works? Yeah. So, um, beforehand before they even start they do a lot of tests to see how deep they think they're going to go to um look at do like a geological survey to look at what they um, are going to need to be able to drill to the depth and here's the thing a lot of people um get excited when they hear about like you know let's get involved in something let's do a humanitarian project humanitarian project let's let's help with a well bring clean water somewhere and in kenya especially a lot of times um, they come in and they'll they'll start that process, but they skip a lot of a lot of the the steps in between. So, with this particular um, project, we wanted to make sure we had sustainable water. So we had the geological study. Um, we knew you a lot of places in that that area. Um, you can hit water in a rainy year at like fifty feet. Um, so oftentimes charities, government um, programs will come in to dig away. You there? Uh oh. Brings forth water. It's not necessarily the best quality water um, and not necessarily um, sustainable. Usually within a couple years, you know, within two years or something like that, those wells will be dry. So um, once they started, after we've got back the survey, we knew what we needed as far as equipment and the depth we were probably going to have to drill to. Um, when, they, when they came in, we ended up drilling down 600 feet to have oh, wow. pure quality of oil, or oil, sorry, of water, and also to be able to be sure that it was sustainable. So we put in um, some solar panels, those solar panels were part of the project that we funded, and those solar panels run, they provide the electricity to um, run the pump. So when the sun comes up, the pump is running, it pumps the water, and it puts it into a tank. Um, that tank then has a spigot kind of looking thing, and we're able to fill water from that. Um, so as it is now, there's one tank for this community. And there's about, like I think I mentioned before, about 10,000 people that this um, well could provide water for, um, just depending on the usage. And what, what we already know is we need a larger tank um, because we have families and, and community members that are further out 
that want to come in, not daily, but from time to time, because it's the clear, the clearest, purest water and the closest to them. Um, so they want to come and bring like larger trucks and things like that to take water back to then distribute in their area. So we need a second, we're going to need a second um, tank. And the next one is going to have to be a little bit larger because once the sun comes up, it, it will fill up. But during the day, if they deplete that tank, it doesn't run during the night to replenish it. So already we can see we're going to need to get to that second phase where we put in another tank and then gravity feed it to some other locations because as the word has gotten out, there are a lot of people that are coming to that specific well. So that's kind of what the process looks like. Um, we also, there is a small fee. Um, we have a guy there that lives in the community um, who is the water master, or I don't know if that's really his title. I just made that up. Um, but he is kind of the one that oversees the well. And so each individual that's coming in and filling their containers with water and things, they're charged a small fee. It's not very much, just a few shillings really. Um, just so that we can maintain the pump and the solar panels and you know everything because just wear and tear we're going to have um, maintenance issues and things like that and he's also the one to troubleshoot it there on the ground so um, oftentimes people have a well put in and they don't have anybody you know that is really maintaining the well and then they find out you know like you know, like the filters get clogged or elephants come through and knock over their tank or whatever. We've got somebody there and we also have um, kind of a sustainable way to maintain that financially with the people in that community. Um, so that's, that's kind of what it looks like, the everyday function of the well. Um, I guess what I was really, really um, impressed with is as I talk to people after they, they did their little presentation and they sang and um, they even gave us names. They gave us um, each one of us that came over with the project. They gave us a, a new name from their community and they speak a dialect of Swahili. So they speak Kamba and they gave each one of us the name. And my name was, um, my new given name was Shambua, which means, um, girl who was born during the rainy season because I was one of the people that helped to bring water to their village. So I thought that was really cool. Was um, it raining on the day you were born or do you know? You know what? I actually don't know. I guess I oh. could probably <laughs> Google that. I have no idea. <laughs> but I thought it was really cool that they, they did this big presentation and they sang and they, you know, they were just so excited and so it was humbling and the gratitude that was shown towards us um, I really knew that the project had not just positively impacted them um, from a like a physical stance you know bringing clean water obviously their health was going to improve the economy for future generations will be changed because of that water but also just spiritually it was an answer to their prayers and so that was, I mean, that was enough right there. If the story was to have ended and the well went in and, you know, that chapter, that that was all there was written, I would be totally ecstatic with 
the, the experience we had and the fact that we were able to accomplish that phase of our project. But I just know there's still opportunities for us to serve and things that we can do to capitalize on what's been started there. So I'm I assume that you're going to go back to install the other tank and complete the because I know this project isn't completed entirely. Right. So that is that is on the docket. That is on our future plans is to get that larger tank. Um, with that, when we get that phase completed, uh, I think that we'll be able to kind of it'll be sustainable and it will be um, a better functioning system than we have right now. So that's on our list for this next upcoming year. Um, yeah. Just got to get ourselves planned and, and make some things happen that way financially. How long did it take you to dig the well? 600 feet. That's, I keep wanting to ask you, how far can you go down until you get to the core of the earth? Because 600 feet, <laughs> that's very deep. That is a good question. I have no idea where the center of the earth is, how many feet. But um, I know it's more than 600 because we didn't hit yeah. like molten lava or anything. Um um, you know, it took several days um, for them to go that deep. They were they were great. The people that we had to work with, they they dug a lot of wells, and they knew what our goal was as far as the depth that we wanted to go. Um, they were working with us so that we made sure that we had not only, like I said, the the depth that we wanted to go as far as for sustainability, but we wanted to make sure we were providing good, clean, pure water. Um, long term, so yeah, I I don't know the number of days. So that's a good question. Um, but I know within like a week's period, we had it all the way to the point where we were able to put the well in. Does it, it uh, when you were digging? Uh, like I said, I'm going to ask you some what might seem to be weird questions, just because I was fascinated with well digging <laughs> as a kid. Um, did it sound very loud when you would hit the hammer uh, or you'd hit the hammer on a pipe? I assume that's how you were digging. No. So, okay. When, when the well was being dug, it's all done by machines now and it is super loud. But, um, as far as that goes, the, the majority of what was being done is all done by machinery and by like, I physically wasn't there digging it. Oh, I was okay. the, um, I was the resource to pay for the digging. <laughs> okay, and I don't even know. This is back in '87. Maybe the maybe they did it by machines then. I just remember somebody was out there with a hammer. Yeah, really, yeah. I don't I, know if that's how they did it in '87, or if they they were just using old technology back then too. I don't know. Yeah, I I don't exactly know what it was like in 1987. But I know a lot of what this was done was heavy machinery and a qualified team of, of experts that this is what they do is dig. So it wasn't us ourselves manually or physically down in a, a hole digging. Now, uh, did you get to taste any of the water? Because I would assume if it's that deep, it's got to be good water. I did. I did. So after we had our um, little ceremony, our welcoming ceremony, um, and we inspected the solar panels and, you know, all of the parts and things. Um, and the water, we started um, having that water flow through there. We started helping the um, community members fill their jugs because they have these 
big plastic jugs that they'll come to fill for their personal use. Um, so as we were doing that, there's just um, a line of people and we're filling jugs just as fast as we can with that water just opened up completely full bore. And um, in between, people would come. So as we're positioning the next um, container underneath the spigot, somebody would come in and like fill their cup kind of thing. And so somebody filled this community, it was this bright pink cup. I can still see it as clear as day. Um, they would come fill it. So we weren't wasting a bunch of water but they come and fill it and somebody handed it to me and I just drank it. I didn't even think twice about it. Afterwards, people were like, are you okay? Did, did that make you sick? I'm like, no, it was fine. Um, so it, it tasted wonderfully. There was no, you know, odor or strange, you know, I couldn't taste it. probably tasted better than the city water. <laughs> You're probably right. Without all of the additives and treatments, that the water goes through as it's processed. Do you, so. Yeah. Do you know if it, it was if it's an aquifer down there, or, or do you know? I don't know. I don't know that. And uh, let's see. I assume the water pump was probably. I don't know how they got the water pump in there, but I assume it, it's six hundred feet down there as well. It'd have to be. So yeah, and then at the, so they dig down, this pump pulls it to the surface, um, and then it's fed into the tank from there. And there's a big cement structure that protects, you know, it's like the housing to that well. Um, I've got pictures, in fact, <laughs> I have hundreds of pictures from, from the trip, but I have pictures of, of the setup with, with the pump and the, the tank and the solar panels and you know, eventually, like I said, we need to put in a larger tank, um, potentially um, more solar panels to be able to um, pump more effectively um, to produce that that uh, electricity. To did you get to hear the water pump as it was as you were uh, as you were you turning hear, on the spigot? You can hear the pump running. Mm -hmm. Did it have a very low frequency, like most water pumps? Yes, I would say so. It just was, yeah, kind of just a constant hum. Yeah, maybe. it almost hypnotizes you, doesn't it, if you hear it long <laughs> enough? Yeah, it was kind of hard to hear because there was a lot of singing and there was a lot of conversations going and things. But when you were right up next to um, the concrete barrier where the well is, um, you could hear that kind of hum in the background. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my uh, my grandmother had a water pump, so I've always been fascinated with the sounds of water pumps as a kid. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the standard of living. What is uh, uh, the standard of living like there? I would assume that uh, the stories are true, that Africa is, a lot of people have houses made of dirt and straw. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. Especially in the upcountry. I mean, if you're in one of the, the more metropolitan areas like Nairobi, um, you have structures that will be, you know, a little bit more similar to what we have here. The further you go out of the city, the further you go out into the, you know, more rural areas, you're going to find the mud and the straw and Sometimes they'll have um, like a metal sheeting for a roof. Sometimes they'll have a thatch type roof. Um, 
a lot of times they'll have, sometimes they'll have some cement work, um, but not always. Very, very humble homes. The homes that we were in during that time in that village where the water, um, where the water project was, um, the, one of the nicest homes that we were in had cement floors and a couple bedrooms. The bathroom was outside, out back in a separate, but so was like an outhouse type thing. So no running water in the house. The kitchen had a sink where you could bring buckets of water into it um, to wash dishes. So it was a sink that just kind of drained into a, a drain that then went into another bucket. I don't know. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some, some of the homes had electricity there in the village. Not all of them had electricity. It's really dry, arid climate. Um, and so everything is just dusty. I mean, there's no end to this red, sandy, powdery dust. It's just everywhere. So, um, a lot of places like the place where we had our home base that was an hour from Kikili Village, um, we rented a room there and like the bathroom didn't have, you know, glass in the windows. So it still provided air, but you slept with mosquito nets. Um, just very simple. And, um, you know, as far as the materials that they used to build, very economical very economical. Um, that was kind of most everywhere that we went, the experience we had. What is the food like over there? Because I have heard that people in Africa eat very healthy. Um, you know, where we were at and with the people we, we were with, they, they, they do. They eat a lot of vegetables. Um, one of their staples is a bread they call chapati bread. Um, it's like an unleavened, so it's a very thin bread. Um, it's not like a typical slice of bread that you would think of a, you know, airy, yeasty type um, dough, but a very flat um, bread. They do eat meat because that's something that they um, they can they themselves can be sustainable, you know. So they do eat some chicken and. Um, they have like a dried fish that they do, um, but very simple meals. Um, to be honest, a lot of the stuff that we brought with us is what I ate. Not because I'm not adventuresome. I love to try new foods and when we travel, I am game for that. Um, but because of the water situation, um, a lot of places, you know, you in the food prep, you wouldn't know if they just use water out of the tap, would that make you sick kind of thing? There were a lot oh. of places. And so we only drank, there were like two types of bottled water um, that we were told were okay for us to drink. Um, so that was the main concern, not because I didn't want to be adventuresome and try some things. Um, a lot of fruit, they have um, fruit trees like mango trees and um, bananas and things like that. So. All right. So uh, the people were very humble, obviously appreciative of the well. And uh, you mentioned that it's going to be have uh, 
it's going to be powered by solar. Is it always sunny there? Because what happens if there's a rainy day and the clouds are up and the sun's not shining? How will that affect the water, the well? Sure, sure. Um, good thing we didn't do it in like the Pacific Northwest or something. That would have not worked as well. But um, there... Oh, come on. Um, I thought the world was going to end in 10 years. We have to go green. <laughs> I don't know about that. I have no prediction to make there. But I do know that um, most of the time they do have enough um, sun and their seasons are warm enough. Not a lot, not a lot of rain. And that's been a problem is there actually have been in a drought for some time, and this has been one of the most severe droughts this year. And that's why um, we pushed up our our time frame to be able to get this well in because um, I have pictures of the riverbeds that are right near this village, and they're completely dry. And then they've dug down another six to ten feet where they find um, not a very clear water, but a brown kind of murky, sandy water, and that's you know, previously where they were getting their water for themselves and for their animals. So they bring their animals to that same place. So it was a contaminated source of water because there's just animal droppings everywhere. There's no oh. hygiene there. There's no, you know, um, way to keep that from being, you know, leached into the soil and into their water. So it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. Um, so I don't think that's going to be a huge factor. Um, I think they'll have this solar power that they need. It should be fine. Uh, how hot was it? What was the weather like there? So it was winter time. Their seasons are opposite for, um, what we're experiencing right now here. Um, oh. the so they're winter, but it wasn't, it wasn't cold. You know, I, I live in Utah, so winter to me is, a totally different climate. Yes. Um, but for them, wintertime, at least the days we were there, it was 70s, you know, and it, it wasn't too hot, wasn't too cold. Um, really nice. No rain. No rain the whole time we were there. Now, I want to get uh, to some other things that we touched on the last podcast. Uh, feminine hygiene, is that becoming a better, is that becoming better? Do you think it'll become better now that this well has been dug? Obviously, you have to put another tank on there, and then I'm mm -hmm. sure that you're going to do some more things. How's the feminine hygiene issue over there? So, um, I mean, I'm, like you said, you touched on the water will make a difference as far as people being able to use that for bathing and, and to keep themselves clean. Um, we were able to go out into the community to several different schools and we took um, 500 kits from Days for Girls with us. Okay. And when we went to those schools, we were able to educate them enough that they understood and here's the thing, they are so, so smart, these kids at school. They know all the answers, and I love the way that they participate in a classroom. You know, the teacher will ask a question, and kids are basically just so smart, and they're volunteering all of this information. They're, they're not fearful to um, share an answer or to stand up and, and, you know, tell us, you know, what they think that means or whatever. So they were just they were awesome to, you know, sit down with. And so we did the education portion of, you know, how your body works, the actual, like how your menstrual cycle works, what to expect, the emotions of that. 
And then we teach them how to use these reusable pads and how to keep them hygienic, how they need to wash them and put them out in the sun to kill any bacteria or germs so they don't get infections. Um, each of the kits have enough supplies in them that um, should last them for three years. So we did this in several schools. Um, we also taught them a little bit about self-defense. Um, so if they're ever in a situation where a lot of times uh, girls can be put in situations where they don't have the supplies to take care of their menstruation needs every month. And so there are perpetrators that will um, come and take advantage of that situation and they will offer to purchase them things in exchange for them selling them their bodies. So mm -hmm. this gives them three years um, and it also gives them the knowledge of how to defend themselves if put in a situation. Um, talks about like how special they are, um, that this is not a curse. Sometimes um, some of the things that they have been told, they think it, you know, like they would rather be a boy or this is, um, you know, a curse. A lot of the girls do not attend school because of the hygiene, that, um, that the, la the lack of hygiene and the ability to take care of their, um, their needs during that week of the month. And so this will allow the girls to stay in school and to be able to participate and um, just give them the, the knowledge, the knowledge of how their body works and that this is so normal and, and, and to just celebrate who they are. So it was cool. We did, we did 500 kits when we went over and it was a really cool experience to sit down with those girls and women. Now, what's going to happen after three years? They don't have the, the kits not working anymore. Do you think there'll be a store or something they can buy these kits or what? So already there are um, days for girls enterprises in a lot of different countries, including um, there's, some in, there's one in Kenya that I know of. So there's these little enterprises, which is also a really cool empowering thing for these women that work at them. So it provides jobs for the women um, they can go and purchase directly from them when they need to replace their kits. Um, and then as well as days for girls, because it's international, they have educators um, in different parts of the world that will come. And, you know, so future girls will still be able to have access to the pads or to replace them or get the education as days for girls continues to grow. And the program, you know, continues to grow. Um, there'll be that opportunity for, future generations as well. So it's really cool what they're doing. Yeah, I actually watched a video uh, in preparation for this mm -hmm. podcast, Days for Girls. Yeah, they're, uh, by the way, just a quick disclosure. Uh, you may not want to listen to this with uh, little kids around. We're not going to be Howard Stern, but we are going to be talking about <laughs> things. Your little three-year-old may not, you may not be comfortable with your three-year-old asking these questions. So just be aware for a few minutes here. Um, yeah, the ministry, the uh, ministrating cycle gets pretty dramatic over there. The, the women think that uh, they have, they, like you said, have this curse and they stay on cardboard for a whole week while they're bleeding mm -hmm. and things like mm -hmm. that. It gets pretty dramatic. 
But you just think they don't have the supplies. They don't have the resources to go get the supplies. And so they have to be pretty, um, I guess, just they have to do the best they can with what little that they have. And so, I mean, the stories are so many different stories. We had one lady that came up to us and she wanted five kits, one for herself. And then she had four daughters. And while we were talking to her as we were gathering her kits and the different sizes she needed, um, she was just saying, you know, you have no idea, like, we are so happy that you're here and that, you know, we're so grateful that you came and brought these. This is, you know, something we needed in our family so badly. You think about that, five of them all having um, the need every single month. And so a lot of times the girls will um, take paperwork, like from their homework, if they've got papers or out of their books, which then they go back to school and they get in trouble for tearing pages out of their books. Um, they'll use like, like leaves or they'll use um, bark. They'll, these, these particular girls, their mom said, you know, we have been cutting up our clothing, but there's an end to that. Like we only have so much, you know, most of these families don't have closets full of clothes. They have what they need. Um, so they'd been cutting up their clothes. They were running out of anything that they could find to cut up. And so they'd been using rocks and a rock is not very absorbent, you know, obviously, but no. the thought process was that that would slow down the flow. Like if you, you know, use oh, yeah. the rock, put the rock up block. there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it just was heartbreaking to listen to some of the stories and to, I mean, gosh, I, I have no idea what that's like. Something that I 100% was taking for granted and just like it's a basic necessity. There was no question ever in my life, like, will I or won't I have those supplies that time of month? You know, will I be able to provide that for my, you know, daughter? Never a question. And so those are real life things that is part of their everyday world. So hearing stories like that um, just made me realize like, obviously how blessed and how grateful I am for what I do have. Um, but also just realizing like that is, that is real. And there's something we can do. We can do to help. Um, we can help people, whether it's donating, you know, to some of these things like days for girls or, um, they have different chapters all over where people can get together and they can help assemble the kits or sew some of the kits that are being donated. Um, there's so many ways you can get involved. Like it doesn't have to be that way. Girls all over the world can, um, they can benefit from this program. So it's really, really well, neat. Does uh, Days for Girls have a website? Might as well plug it while we're here. Yes, they sure do. It's Days for Girls, I think, dot org, I want to say. We'll find it on Google. I'll put a link to it. Uh, did you meet Celeste, by the way? I have not met her. I did work with an amazing girl um, who is from Kenya and she actually owns, um, runs one of the enterprises. So we brought 250 kits from the United States and then we purchased 250 kits from her enterprise. So it gave them, um, it gave them work to do. It was providing an income to some of her women that work there, um, which by the way, I mean, like I said, everything just fell into place. Those 250 kits that we bought, um, 
there were several women there that their children weren't going to school because they didn't have work to do and they couldn't pay their school fees. As soon as we placed that order for 250 kids, they paid them um, up front a portion of their wages so they could put their kids back into school. And then as the work was completed, they, they paid them the remainder um, as, you know, as just a, as a, they're just good people as a way to help them out. So like I said, everything worked out for a reason. Um, so we met this um, enterprise um, uh, worker, Alice, and she was just amazing. So when we would come in to distribute the kits and do the education, she did part of the trainings. Um, and in the schools where maybe they didn't speak um, English as well, she would speak to them in their native language. She was fun. She could relate to them. She could communicate to them. Um, she, she just is such a huge role model to them. And she had stories that she could share with them that they related to. Some of the things she thought, you know, like she was told when she was younger that if she, there was a specific tree, that if she would run around it eight times, it would change her into being a boy. And she wanted to be a boy so bad as a young girl so she didn't have to deal with that monthly um, period. Yeah. So it was just interesting. She had stories that she could share, and those girls just opened up to her. So she went as an ambassador with us to the different schools. Um, and it is daysforgirls.org, just so you know. I okay. Just, uh, yeah, I had to get uh, I had to get somebody from there on here. That would be a very good interview. Yeah. Oh, you would. Yeah, it's amazing. I can give you a contact with Alice, or there are local chapters here in the states, just depending on what take you want to go from. Yeah. Um, so what? Now uh, you don't have to share this if you don't want to. What was a very spiritual experience for you that you don't mind sharing? Um, yeah, no problem. So like I said, there were, there were a lot of things that now looking back had an impact on me spiritually or opportunities that I had that as I look back were testimony builders, but one in particular, so we met someone, like I said, that, um, runs an orphanage for 31 kids and he has the most amazing story. I'll just briefly tell you because it kind of all plays into this. Um, he joined the church. Stephen joined the church when um, he was in high school, and was this able was to. This was the guy from Africa. Yep, the orphan. He he runs the orphanage. He and his wife, and um, he joined the church when he was in high school. Served a mission um, in Kenya, so he stayed home in his homeland. Um, served a mission. Came back from his mission. And his mission president called and said, Elder, we could really use your help. Can you please come back and serve another mission? Went back to the mission field. Um, That's like the 1800s all over again. I know. It's, it's crazy. And he's younger than I am. So it wasn't the 1800s. Um, anyhow, he went back and served another year. So in total, three years of a mission. When he returned home after those three years, um, he found that his brother's um, wife had passed away, leaving a one-year-old and a three-year-old um, with no one to raise them. Oh. And as a child, he was actually not raised by his parents. He was raised um, by a few different family members. 
and he remembers what it felt like to go to bed hungry. They would feed the kids at night and the children that were blood, you know, like their blood children relations to, you know, these family members would get larger portions. And if there wasn't enough, then he and his siblings, they got less or they didn't get any at all. So he saw his brother's children in going to be in similar circumstances. And as a single young man, he, you know, was 20 something years old. He said, I, I just didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't let that happen. And so he um, took these two children in, um, provided a home for them. And um, he had, he just, he's just such a good guy. He just radiates the pure love of Christ. Like everywhere he goes, like his smile, his countenance, there's just a light about him. And so he's earning a living. He's providing for these kids. Um, and he meets his wife. She's really cute. She's like, are you sure these aren't your kids before I marry you? You know, when they were dating, he's like, she's like, I need to know these really aren't like somebody else's. Like there's a mother to these children and they go and visit his mom and she reassures them that these are not Steven's kids and they're, they are, you know, his niece and nephew. And so she marries them and they settle down in, um, Soweto, which is just, um, it's just an area of Nairobi that is, um, not probably the most dangerous, but second to most dangerous and poor areas of that metropolitan area. They call it a slum. Um, and that's where they decide to live. That's kind of where his roots are, where he, where he came from. And, um, as they're raising these children, there are a lot of kids that are not orphaned, but they live on the streets. Their families cannot provide for them. And so they turn them out into the streets to kind of survive on their own. And so it's very common to see children ask you for money, to ask you for food, those kinds of things. And so Stephen said, you know, after they, they were married and raising these two children, when kids would come up to him and ask him for money to go buy bread, chapati, or, or whatnot, he would say, you know what, I can't do that. But if you want to come home with me, I will give you a meal. So that's kind of how this orphanage began is he just started feeding kids. And um, present day, he has 31 now. It was, you know, his original two, then it was four, then it was six, then it was 10. And now he has 31 children that um, are living full-time um, at his center. And then during the day, he provides school because there are a lot of kids in the slum that can't afford the school fees. They can't afford to go to school. And so he provides for the teachers. He pays these teachers um, to um, then do a school for 110 in total kids daily. So those kids that are living on the streets can come there and go to school and they get lunch paid for them. And it's a miracle. I, I mean, fishes, fishes and loaves of bread, you know, I don't know. They have the, just the tiniest amount of resources, but yet they make things work. They make ends meet, um, somehow. And so, um, I guess where that takes me to is one of the days we were down at the orphanage and we were, um, bringing some stuff down for the kids and going to spend the day with them. Um, it ended up that there was an HEFY group that um, their flight had been canceled. They were in Nairobi, their flight had been canceled and they weren't going to leave until later that night. So they had like a whole eight or 10 hours in the city 
and somebody knew somebody that knew somebody, you know, one of those things that knew Stephen's cousin. And they said, well, Stephen has an orphanage. Maybe there's something your kids could go do there to kind of be um, helpful, you know, because it's a humanitarian EFY. So they showed up while we were there the one day. And where I just had like that spirit hit me so strong is at the end of we went and sang and danced and played with the kids and played soccer and did all sorts of things. Um, the HEFY kids were getting ready to leave and they wanted to do something for the kids, you know, um, and leave them kind of a, a token of their appreciation for letting them be there. And so um, the kids from the HEFY group got up and they sang two songs. And even as I tell you, like I get, I get a little emotional and I get a little goosebumps on my arms because they stood up and they sang to these kids in the orphanage, I'm a child of God. And those 31 kids who um, live with Stephen and his wife, he takes them to church every Sunday and they knew every word in English. And the oh second my gosh. song, yeah, it was amazing. The second song um, they sang was families can be together forever. Um, and it was hard to just hold back the tears because I, I'm thinking as I'm looking at these kids, you know, families can be together forever. And they were born into families that, um, for one reason or another have been broken apart or these kids have been abandoned. And at first I felt so, so sad, but as I stood there and listened to them sing, I thought, you know what? They have a family. This is their family, Stephen and his wife, and they have 31 siblings. Like, this is what their family unit looks like. It might not look like what my family looks like, but that's what they know. And I just, it was just the coolest experience. Um, like, the spirit just was so strong. It was, uh, it was it's emotional for me to even talk about it right now, but. Um, yeah, here we I have, have to, to worry about religious uh, separation, church and state, and all the government programs. That's another story. Yeah, so it was, you know, that's probably one of my, my most treasured um, memories as far as a spiritual memory from the trip. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I'm kind of getting somewhat emotional. I'm not a very emotional person. Uh, that, that is a very moving story. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. not, if you know me very well, I'm not very emotional. <laughs> it's hard. It's, it's hard not to feel a little something. It you know? is. Just hearing you tell the story. Yeah. It, it truly like, yes, you know, we did good there. I feel like we, we, um, we fulfilled a purpose by going the well fulfilled a purpose um, the recipients of the well, the recipients, you know, there at the orphanage and the Days for Girl project, all of those I knew would be, be benefit, you know, be benefited by what we were um, there to do. But honestly, I just, I learned so much about myself, like who I am, like my responsibility as um, a daughter of God, um, that we are all brothers and sisters. And I just gained a clearer purpose. I just wanted to do more. I knew that I could give more. I could, you know, 
be more. I was, I was really just touched. Yeah, I would be. Now I do, I am going to get political here for a few minutes. Uh, okay. I don't know what your politics are. I assume that you're fairly conservative being LDS and from the Intermountain West. Sure. I would um, probably Has this confirmed your belief that maybe we don't have to rely on the government for everything? Because it's oh, confirming absolutely. my belief. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. It's kind of confirming my belief we can actually get out of the UN and all this and let people such as you and Mike and Del Terra and Days for Girls take over a lot of this. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we get so wrapped up in the red tape and the legislation and the channels and and really what it's about about is, you know, the people. And um, if we can simplify some of those things and just do something and really recognize the power that one person has when we join with other people, like-minded people with the same, you know, goals and interests and whatnot. We can accomplish a lot. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's uh, something to think about. Absolutely. Now, Absolutely. I am not. Uh, I am not a right-wing extremist. I'm not a John Bircher, although I did interview one on this podcast. Ah. Uh, but it is confirming my standpoint that we don't have to rely on Big Brother for everything, do we? No, I absolutely agree. There's so much we can do, so many things we can contribute to this world, um, individual to individual, with a purpose. Yes, absolutely. Anything else I've missed? Anything you want to cover? Um, you know, no, I think, like, like I said, it's hard to put into words all of the experiences um, from the trip. But in the end, like I said, I learned a lot about myself. And, um, I would encourage people to, to, to just figure out like who they are, what their purposes are, um, how they can contribute, how they can, um, find a place where you feel like you can make a difference. You know, even if it's just to one, you know, it, in the end, you know, my kids, as we look through, the hundreds of pictures, some of their favorite pictures were not of the wildlife. They weren't of the foods we ate, you know, it wasn't those types of things. They love the pictures of the people, but especially those kids in the orphanage. And my youngest son was like, you know, why didn't you just like adopt some and bring them home? Like in his, his simple way of looking at things, like there's the solution, mom, you just go there, you get them, you bring them home. They have food on the table. Like they can go to school. They can have clean clothes. Like, duh, like that's so simple. And you know, that does work. I mean, there are sometimes, you know, processes that we can go through it and we, I'm not saying adoption is, is, is the only way though. Like, I think that there are, there are circumstances where we can have an impact and it's not through adoption. And I came back feeling like, okay, rather than um, making a difference for one of those children, you know, like some, it seemed like to me I could have a better, um, more lasting impact if I came back and told that story and I was able to share with people on a face-to-face, -face, you know, like a human connection of what 
what I saw there and how we can make a difference. And so if I can be a catalyst or facilitate by telling my story to get people to want to be involved and help us to, you know, create resources to raise money, to go back. That's our, our thing is in addition to finishing up the water project, um, we want to go back and do a few things. One of them is um, to be able to go back next um, June and be able to do some repairs on the school that they have right now. Um, make it so it's a little bit safer than it is right now. Um, another thing, you know, I would like to do personally, maybe six months from now is I'd like to be able to replace some of the mattresses they have for the kids in the orphanage that are sleeping two to three kids per bunk. And they're just like camping pads, like foam pads that are worn out and, so there's some things that I want to do by sharing that story, by doing some fundraising, um, and and then long term, you know, if I can make a difference in in those kids' lives, then I I, I feel good that I've I've done something that's for someone besides myself that I've been able to you know make a positive impact in the world and and make a change for those kids and the future kids that will come to that orphanage and to that school. So that's kind of where my, my big dreams and goals are taking me next is like, how do we do that? Um, I did bring home. So Steven, the orphanage, um, the, the guy that runs the orphanage, he and his kids, they make some nativity sets and they're just these beautiful African um, nativity sets that they, they make out of, really out of recyclable materials. Um, so it's incredible what they do. So I brought some of those home that I'm going to, you know, sell to family and friends and whoever will listen to me. Um, but my long-term goal, big goal, is um, to be able to help them um, raise enough money that like five years from now, they can get a piece of property because they're renting right now where the school is, buy a piece of property, have a well, have a garden. Right now they don't have anywhere for those kids to be. They don't have a sustainable food source. Um, and then to build a structure there that is permanent for them. So I have a big job. I have a big goal. Um, and it's going to take, you know, me sharing, sharing with people and, and kind of collaborating and getting their ideas and, and getting people to join me and um, seeing the vision. Yeah, well, that's that's really neat. Um, do you plan to go back to this to Kenya, uh, the the little town you were in, the country, to uh, to install the second water tank? Yeah, so that's not far from from the orphanage. So, like on the same visit, we could we could do both. So, um, oh, whether okay. I'll be on the ground when they do that second um, tank, I would think they'd want to do that second tank before. Six months yeah, I don't know if I will be there. They may do that before I get there, but I'm planning on going back next June. And so if they have that in place, I'll go out and visit. I'll go see how things are coming along. Um, because like I said, it, it's, it's just a few hours from where the orphanage is, where we want to do that next project there. Yeah. All right. Uh, 
have another question for you. Um, have you read the book, A Brave New World? There's a reason I'm asking. No, I feel like I should, because obviously you're going to ask me a question about it. Now I'm not prepared, but no, I have not. Well, I have always said, and uh, bear with me here, we'll, I'll relate this back to your experience. We are living in a 1984 and Brave New World society put together. The reason I say that is because we are definitely being monitored by Big Brother. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure you've read the book 1984, at least heard about it. Yep. Mm -hmm. And the telescreens, and yeah, we may not have telescreens, but gosh, we have... Uh, surveillance all over the place our phones are surveying or being a surveillance uh you could just walk walk along the side of the road somebody would be videoing you sending a live video feed somewhere we're being surveyed all the time mm -hmm. it's like night mm -hmm. and then uh, brave new world we love our technology and in a there's a scene in the brave new world and in the book where uh two people go out into this place where the savages are kind of like what you're describing and the girl just hates it. And the guy finds it very refreshing to find out how simple these people are living, even though they are deemed as savages and maybe in some respects they are. I haven't, it's been a while since I've read the book again, or it's been a while since I've read the book, mm -hmm. but I'm looking at, I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking of a brave new world and thinking uh, just who the savages are in this world. A very deep question, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot to think about. My uh, math teacher in my senior year of high school, him and I got very philosophical, and I told him about my experience in brave, reading A Brave New World, and he asked me who the savages were, and to satisfy him, I said, oh, those, the people who were civilized, but now that I'm having this conversation with you, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe uh, we might be savages in different ways, perhaps. Interesting question. Mm. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? You know, I think that pretty much touches on at least a, the broad, you know, overview of what the experience was like. And, you know, I, I can't really put into words it, you know, the, the way I feel now, um, about the well project, about the other projects we did. Um, it, it's, it's just like experiencing it is so much more rich. And so putting it into words, I feel like it loses something, but hopefully I was able to at least convey yeah. a little bit of the Oh, absolutely. Uh, one more question, though. Do you think your relationship with God has improved over this? It sounds like it has. Absolutely. Absolutely. When complete strangers will come up to you and hug you and kiss you and um, express gratitude, even if they don't speak the same language with you, but you can tell with their body language what they're trying to say with their eyes, you know, what they're saying. You know that we are all we are all equal. We are all the same people. Um, we all came from the same place. Like that, that has become very real to me and to know that I am no different than they are, but I got to be the answer to someone's prayers that I was able to be that 
tool. Um, that's just, you know, I, I can't say, say much more about that, but that was just a special experience um, that in that situation, I, I 100% know that our Heavenly Father knows us individually and he works through us to answer prayers. Yes. In fact, uh, President Kimball said the Lord meets the needs of people. That is true, but it is usually through a different person. I'm paraphrasing. That's basically what it was. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. And that was reinforced to me a thousand times. <laughs> Absolutely. I can think of my own experience. Well, I will uh, end the podcast here and uh, we will uh, by the way, I just so you all know, you folks listening to the podcast, I'm going to try. It looks like uh, Stan Ellsworth is coming on. Do you know who Stan Ellsworth is? Oh, I'm going to show my ignorance again. I have no idea. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I didn't know who he was either till last year. He did the American Ride on BYU TV. Okay, still and, don't know. Oh. Yeah, he, he wrote on a Harley all over the country and gave history. Yeah. yeah, okay. Now he has a new show called The American Highway. He's trying to syndicate it. Uh, we'll talk about that, and uh, maybe we'll talk about his motorcycle experiences and all kinds of things. And I'm going to try and get some other people on. I don't want to say who because I don't want people coming up and – I know Stan Ellsworth is probably going to come on. That's why I'm safe saying his name. Uh, Anyway, Um, folks, we will talk at you later.